Welcome to Leveraging Leadership, where we unpack the art of business leadership. I'm your host, Emily Sander, Chief of Staff turned Executive Leadership Coach. In this series, we dive into the role of Chief of Staff, exploring how it can be a game changer and pivotal player on your leadership team. You'll get a backstage pass and learn about the different aspects of the role and what it takes to excel in it. We'll hear from some incredible guests who have firsthand experience serving as Chief of Staff or collaborating with one on their team. And don't forget, the Chief of Staff isn't just a title of person, it represents a leadership philosophy. Leveraging leadership is all about finding your points of greatest influence and leveraging them to better serve those around you. Eric, how's your week going? Going really well, Emily. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I We have so much in common, right? So we're fellow chiefs of staff or former chiefs of staff. We're fellow coaches through the ICF. And we're mm-hmm. huge fans of the book Essentialism. So I think that that's one of your favorite books. And that's certainly one of the ones that I recommend to readers too. So we'll have lots to talk about. It'll be, it'll be a great time, but very much looking forward to this conversation. Just to set the stage, can you kind of zoom us way back and uh, set the stage about, you know, where did you grow up and, and how did you get into, into business? Well, that's a big question, but <laughs> I grew up in a suburb outside of Chicago, Wheaton, Illinois, which is was immortalized in Trivial Pursuit as having the most churches per capita of any town oh, in America. I would not have guessed that. It is, yeah, there was one town, block downtown that had four churches on it, which gives wow. you an idea of just what kind of Christian fundamentalist town I grew up in. Unfortunately, I was not a Christian fundamentalist, so I did not fit in very well there. And, you know, it, it, led me to kind of plot my own path a little bit. And as a result of that, I've kind of had my own independent way of thinking ever since being a kid. I have this distinct memory of being in like biology class and being the only person arguing for evolution against the rest of the class, including okay. the biology teacher. Oh, okay. So that gives you an idea of the, the situation. Because my mom was a biologist and she was like, yeah, no, <laughs> we're not doing creationism <laughs> in my household. Cool. But eventually I escaped. I went to college on the East Coast. I went to MIT and I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. Like, okay, those people are really just not industrial science. That's fine. I majored in physics as an undergrad and then went on to grad school before realizing that physics was really hard and (laughs) I didn't really want to make it my whole life. Fortunately, this was 1998 during the dot-com boom Mm -hmm. and anybody that could program a computer could get hired. And I could program a computer. So I got hired as a software engineer and I did that at several startups over the next eight to 10 years. The pivotal moment during that time was being at a company with a great engineering team, a great tech team. We were doing really amazing work that, you know, doing stuff nobody else in the world could do. And I was really excited to be there. I was like, loved it. I loved my coworkers. We're doing great stuff. It's exciting work. And we raised money based on what we were doing. And the company raised $40 million and then went bankrupt a year later. Oh. And I was like, wait, I don't that's understand. Not supposed to happen. That's <laughs> not how this works. Like we deliver <laughs> on what we do, and we're the engineers deliver what it's supposed to do, and we went bigger. What is going on here? And the answer is we had a terrible CEO who made idiotic decisions. So that was kind of a turning point for me to realize, like, it doesn't matter how good of an engineer I am, if the leadership isn't great, if the business yes. isn't great, and so I started pivoting my career in that direction. I went back to get a master's degree in technology management which is kind of like an MBA for tech people. 
and then joined Google on the business side of things. So I was doing business strategy, business modeling, business operations, eventually becoming the chief of staff for the search ads team at Google for over six years. Yes. So just to pause there, let me jump in. Yeah. How did that come about? So you were at Google before in a different function. And then did you get noticed by your 2B principal or how did that how did that come about? Yeah, so I was on the finance side doing revenue forecasting. And so I was in meetings every week with the leaders of the search ads team because they had revenue and we were talking about revenue every week. So the product engineering leaders I was on a weekly in a weekly meeting with, I presented about their business. We talked regularly about their business. And a few years later when I was Kind of deciding what to do next. I was casting around for what I wanted to do because I didn't want to do that anymore. Somebody put me in touch with one of the VPs I already knew. And he said, I'm looking for a chief of staff. And I was like, what's a chief of staff? Because this was 2012, I guess. And it wasn't really a popular term, especially in the tech world at that point. And yeah, so he was like, I don't know. I don't know what a chief of staff is, but I need help. You know my business. Come help me. So that's how I, so when people say like, how do I become a chief of staff? I'm, I'm like, pretty sure not the way I did it. <laughs> Didn't really tell you. I'm not quite sure. It just happened. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then was it like, did your principal knew that they needed help just like running things? Like what, what, how did they know they needed help? Well, the chief of staff was just kind of becoming a thing at Google at that point. Another exec had, had gotten one and the VPs were like, hey, that, that looked pretty nice to have somebody helping out with all this, all this yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think he had just gotten to the point where he wasn't quite, he knew what to do. I mean, a lot, the thing was a lot of these leaders at Google, especially were pretty young and they'd been advanced because they were just in the right place at the right time and they took on more scope and they didn't really have training. They didn't really have support. They didn't really have mentorship. It was kind of like figuring it out as they go. So just having a thought partner was really yeah. helpful. Yeah. Like I remember one of our first one-on-ones I was like, what's top of mind? He was just like, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. I'm like, oh, I could do this and this. He's like, this feels so good. <laughs> like, I could just talk about stuff I'm worried about and somebody's going to help me with it. So that was kind of a big part of the role because he didn't feel he could do that with his team because he didn't right. want to worry it them. Goes a long way. He didn't want to stress them out. Yeah. Such, a, such an important point because, I mean, you want to be transparent and you want to be candid and you want to pass along information to help people, but you don't want to rattle people and and freak them out unnecessarily, mm-hmm. right? And so sometimes those venting sessions or worried sessions or just talking out loud to someone, it's it's amazing. Just just by hearing yourself and going through that verbal thought process, you can come up with ideas or, you know, as I say that or as I hear myself say that, actually, X, Y, and Z. So that's that's awesome. And oh, uh, sorry, I'll just jump in there and say yeah. like, and you just described what coaches do. Kind of <laughs> provide people we listen, provide people a chance to work out their own thoughts. So yeah. you can see how I made the transition to the next phase of my career. Yeah, it's almost like there's like overlap or kind of transferable <laughs> skills or something in there. So yeah, I would absolutely say for any chief of staff, there is this coaching aspect or a coach approach that will serve you well. And I was, you know, in all the leadership roles I had before, I was doing coaching before I knew what mm-hmm. coaching was. So I think there's certainly that that tie back. And then just to kind of give people context. So this was on the ads team and your principal was the VP of search ads or how did mm-hmm. that work? Okay. Yeah, he was the VP of search ads. So the product management VP. So he ran, he was making the product decisions about 
search ads, which at the time was growing past like a hundred billion in revenue wow, a year. Wow, so. geez. Okay. And then who did he report to? He reported the SVP that was running all of ads. Okay. At the time, actually, the my principal is now that person oh, running all of ads. So, yeah. All right. So over the time I worked with him, he went from running just one corner search ads to running all of ads. Wow, huge, huge. And then you had what was it? Eight <clears throat> executives. How many people were on your executive leadership team? I think he had, yeah, six, some, around eight directors kind of reporting into him. And so, you know, back to the earlier point about being a confidant, one of the roles I served was if you ask, if you asked his team, what should we invest more in? It was not surprising <laughs> that each director was like, my area is clearly the most yes. important and where it needs more resources. And so, one of my, because I had the background on the finance side and had done annual planning and understood headcount and budget, one of my roles was to sit on the side and evaluate all these pitches and go, okay, so let's actually invest here and here. And those other guys, they'll be fine. We don't, we, they're, I mean, they're still important. It's not that we don't love you, but the biggest opportunity for us as a whole is going to be over here. But, you know, him as a VP, like he, he could, again, couldn't have those discussions directly with people because they're biased and understandably so. They should be looking yeah. out for their team. And it was helpful for me to be an objective person on the side thinking about like what's best for the business. Yeah, they're doing their jobs when they're advocating for their team. When you said that, it reminded me of like kind of like a little shark tank and they have to go <laughs> present their ideas present their ideas to Eric. So that's, mm -hmm. that's too funny. But uh, I think, and so with the financial background, I've I've worked with chiefs of staff from all backgrounds and experiences, but finance and that analytical piece is definitely one of them where, you know, I can see across the board, I can make, you know, probable high, high probability decisions in terms of mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. Just, just to touch on that a little bit, how did that background or lens inform you being chief of staff? Uh, it informed me in a few ways. I mean, for one thing, because I had done business modeling and revenue forecasting, mm -hmm. like I had an idea of how the money worked. Yeah. And I had a, one of my skills was being able to break down complex things into like, what are the two or three assumptions that really matter here? What are the things that are going to drive results? And this was actually a testament to the former CFO of Google, Patrick Pichette, because that was his favorite question. He would, everybody coming in asking for funding, he'd be like, what do I have to believe for this to be successful? And it's like, you're like, I have to believe this many Thanks. people are going to sign up at this price. And he would just like really dive into those assumptions. And he was like, okay, how do we test them? Here's some, here's three months of funding. Go test those assumptions and come back to me. Wow. And working for him for several years, I learned that was the important question to ask. I learned to prepare for it. I learned to think through it. And, you know, I like to joke that there are these McKinsey background consultants that would come in and they'd make these 500 line spreadsheets, super complex, covering every detail, but 495 of those lines were made up. <laughs> and it's like, I don't get any business insight. So like I would do a 10 line you know, model, but it had like, here's the three key numbers that we actually need to pay attention to. Yeah. And so <clears throat> coming in as a chief of staff, being able to do that, work with the product people, look at the things that actually mattered and distill it into here's the things that matter was really important. And I'll make, sorry, one more point. To, the other thing that it really gave me was credibility. Yeah. Because as a chief of staff, it's really easy to be seen as just a mouthpiece for the principal. Yeah. And, but I came in, I'm like, I have my own corner to stand on. Like, I'm the business expert here. I know more about your revenue than you do. And that really gave me credibility, especially with engineers that I wouldn't have had if I had just come in with no expertise. 
That's interesting. Yeah, it's a good point. In terms of for other chiefs of staff who might be listening and say, I don't, I don't have that financial background. And that's mm-hmm. for me personally, like me, Emily, like I, I don't have yeah. a financial background yet. I work very closely with our CFO and also the different financial numbers. What's something you could tell a non-financial person? Like, mm-hmm. here's what you need to know to have a working knowledge, or here's what you need to look at to get to the crux of the issue. I mean, the, the main thing is, <laughs> in a weird way, it's just recognizing that the, translating everything into dollars matters. Mm-hmm. And being able to understand what is the revenue potential, what is this going to cost? Because in the end, as a business, as a in their capitalist society, that's what matters. Like, okay. am I going to make more money than I spend and how much? So it's not just, is this a good idea? Which there's a lot of good ideas. But given these resources, where am I going to get the best return? Yeah, we and had that's that the fundamental question of finance. We had, we had that. So basically it was, what is your projected ROI for this decision? Like if we, that's a really cool product, that's amazing, you know, but it only gets us uh, this far compared to this other one. You know, we have to say, let's go with, with the higher ROI. So that's a good, that's a good one. And I also think for just, what do I want to say here? Not normal business people, but just, you know, early Mm -hmm. business people, early early executives who are still Mm -hmm. learning how to make their case. I think that's important. You have to translate it. It's a business at the end of the day. And so you have to translate it into those those types of ROI wins. Did Google use chief of staff as like a transition, as a rotational piece? You were in there for six years. So how did they see that role? It started off more as a transitional kind of role. People would come in to get familiar with the team. So a lot of times people were using it as a way to trans- transfer from like sales or finance into the product team okay. and become a product manager. I was unusual in that like I didn't actually want to be a product manager. <laughs> I actually really liked being the chief of staff in part because of the coaching aspects we talked about. I love having the big picture. I love having my able to poke my nose anywhere I wanted to go. So I ended up staying in the role for six years and by the end of my time as a chief of staff, they had actually created a product operations career ladder for chief of staff. So there was actually then a wow. a, a future for me in that role. <laughs> but yeah, when I started, it was like they didn't, they didn't have a career ladder. They didn't have a place to put me. They're like, oh, we'll put you on the program manager career ladder. Because that, that kind of seems random right. guy over there. Yeah. <laughs> New York exactly. chart. Yeah. And at yeah. Google, I imagine product manager is like top, top of the mountain. Mm, engineering is top of the mountain. Engineering, okay. Google is an engineering-centric organization. Product managers are, they are empowered, but they, they it's, it was very intentionally designed from the start that product management reported here, engineer reported here. So that product managers could not tell engineers what to do because they had authority. <laughs> they had to convince them and influence them oh. and say, and it was all a peer relationship. So it was set up so there's product management, product managers and engineers were co-leaders of uh, an area because that way they wanted to keep engineering independent. Oh, interesting. Okay, so they structured it that way. Okay. And then, you know, I I know one of the big things you talk about is this idea of hierarchical power structure versus aligned leadership. So Mm -hmm. when you just talked about the organ and how Google structures things, just like institutionally, they structure it this way. How did Mm -hmm. that notion of hierarchical power and aligned leadership come up for you? It's something I've been thinking about for a long time because it, you know, especially early in my career, I was the young know-it-all that like, you know, the mid-20s engineer that's like, I know better than you what you're doing. And, you know, at the company that went bankrupt, I, I did actually know better than the people in charge and they didn't listen to me. And it was very frustrating for me because I'm like, 
I literally at one point wrote an email like, the decision you're making is so terrible. This is how the next six months are going to play out. I'm writing this to you VPs so that you understand what you're getting into. And I know you're not going to listen to me. So I'm just going to forward you this email in six months and say, I told you so, which I did, which did not endear me to them. Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Yeah. People don't like, I told you so. Yeah. Yeah. It was not very effective. So uh, a large part of my own career arc is learning that being right is not enough and learning how to influence people and convince them is a really important part of actually getting things done. Let's just emphasize Um, that. Sorry. Being right is not enough. It's being able to influence them. Huge. That's huge. It's huge. So I was I was very clear early on that hierarchy doesn't work if the people in the top aren't listening. Yeah. And and you can enforce it. You can use the big ugly stick of authority. Say, do this, or you're gonna get fired. Do this, or you're gonna your poor performance. You only have suffer. so many of those. Yeah. You only have so many of those, and you're just not getting the best information. Like we had the information in the organization. It just wasn't being heard by the leadership team. Yeah. And the, the problem with the hierarchy is that you only hear the people at the top. You don't hear what everybody else is saying. You don't take advantage of all the collective wisdom. This is a, a, a deep, deep, deep pull if you're a, but if you're a sci-fi nerd, that like the book Ender's Game really illustrated this from the start. I mean, Orson Scott Card is an ass. I want to be very clear about that. He's a terrible person, but that book was very influential to me because it showed. The idea was like the aliens had a top-down structure, only one mind thinking about the yeah. problem. And the reason the humans won is so like every ship had its own commander that could make its own decisions at its right level. And it was all coordinated from together so that everybody was, all the intelligence was being used, all the collective intelligence was being used. I don't agree with the author's personal views, but that is literally a pivotal book in, in my world too. So it's crazy that you mentioned that. Um, we have two now, but yeah, it was, you know, it was like the Borg mentality, kind of like the hive mentality, where if you take the queen out or you take the the key person out, the whole system just, you know, collapses and goes and goes to pieces. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I could go off on a tangent about Ender's Game, but <laughs> let me try to stay focused here. So, sorry, continue. Keep going. Ender's Game taught you that about aligned yeah. leadership and using everyone's everyone's skills. Exactly. So that was kind of a, like an early fiction model of how that could work. And there are, there are various other models that I've, I've looked at over time. WL, Gord Associates, the people that make Gore-Tex, that's how they run their factories. There's no people in charge. There's just like everybody shows up and just does what they think is necessary. And then people mobilize and work together on problems. And I've, I loved that. And the problem with that is they f- figured out that you couldn't make factories bigger than like 200 people <laughs> that worked like that because you need you hit the Dunbar number thing where it's like you just don't recognize everybody and don't have that social trust. So... So I, I've kind of spent my whole career looking for this, the uh, alternatives to the hierarchical model, because I could see the limitations of it. And at the same time, there's benefits to it. Like it it scales. It scales in a way that having everybody work independently and horizontally doesn't necessarily scale. So it's, how do you get the most of the best of both models is kind of a question I've always wondered about. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm interested. Is there a point, is there a tipping point at which you do need to Build in some structure. You just to, to hold it together, to keep it together, you have to put in some structure or some hierarchy. I think there is. I, I don't know if I could pinpoint it, but you know, to use a biological analogy, like there's a reason the biggest animals are vertebrates. They need a skeleton to hang things off of. And that's kind of what happens. You do need some some level of, I know I hate saying it, but there's some level of process, some level of bureaucracy to give a structure to hang everything else off of. 
That being said, how do you do it in a way that the leaders that can still get that information from across the org, can you still bubble up the information they need, can be have the curiosity to kind of pursue what's going on rather than rather than just you know go with their gut and not really be informed. Or just be going off, you know, yes men and yes women who are just up in the upper echelons. And I think too, you can have structure and you can have hierarchy, and the chief of staff can still build the information flow across the organization, right? Like they can build that infrastructure and those channels. So the information does get top down, bottom up and across. And so um, that's fascinating. I think there there probably is a sweet spot in, in between those two things. And I think it also evolves and kind of moves as, a, as an organization matures or goes in different directions. So yeah, lots of different analogies you could apply there, but very cool. Yeah, everything is so dynamic. Everything's changing and moving. And so one thing I've learned, especially as a coach, is like there's just no answer that works in all situations. It's really what's happening here now and what's working today may not work tomorrow because people are complex and the world is complex and makes it harder, but it also makes it fun. <laughs> well, it's first of all, chief of staff, never boring. Never boring. Nope. You can say a lot of things about the chief of staff, but boring isn't one of them. And then how did you go about getting that information to your principal or getting that information to someone in power when, so let me back up. From my experience, people would act differently around our CEO. They just would. Like, it's weird. It's, it's, they would be like railing on something to me and like pounding their fists on the desk. And then once they would get in the room with the CEO, no, everything's fine. No, no, that's not a problem. Everything's mm -hmm. fine. And it was just a very weird phenomenon that I saw over and over and over again. So what were some of the things that you did to make sure the the right information, the most relevant, helpful information was getting to the key executives? I mean, part of it was like, I had nobody reporting to me. So like, there, there is no way for me to get things done through authority. Like if we talk about influence without authority, and I had to learn to build relationships and earn trust so that people would do things. And as part of that, I had to understand what mattered to them. So it's not like, I want this because it's good for me. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. And so it's like, what are you, what's, what's bothering you? What's, how can I be helpful to you? And if I'm helpful to them, I earn trust. And then they're more willing to talk to me and, and do what I need them to do. So like, you know, one of the, the things I walked in the, on day one and, and helped with was like, anytime finance or sales calls, send them my way. Mm. Yeah. And product managers love Yeah, that. they're like, you, that's all you, Eric. <laughs> that's all you. We're like, yeah. great, you should go talk to Eric. Just Eric, go talk to Eric, go talk to Eric. And like, it saved their time. 95% of the time I could answer the, the the questions myself. And if I couldn't, I would be able to ask the right question to the engineer. Like, here, can you just tell me this one thing? Mm. And like, so it saved them time. And it just, because I was willing to take that burden off that and it, you know they they were like okay eric's really useful to me i want to keep him happy because he's protecting me from ah, this okay something like you know something deemed like that's hard i don't want to deal with that that's an eric's you know strength zone and so i'm going to give that to him that's a great example have did you ever have a situation or how would you approach a situation where you don't have a receptive executive whether that mm -hmm. be a colleague that you're you know trying to work with as a peer or your own principal who just isn't receptive to you know you in the role or something you're saying? How do you go about that? Funny, like this was literally one of my interview questions for many years. It's like, how do you how do you do this? But the answer, I mean, first you understand what they care about. Like, what are they trying to advance? What are they concerned with? 
And then you put what you want them to do in that ter- in terms of that. So if they're like, they're getting hammered on like increasing revenue, like, hey, this is how we could increase revenue. Or if they're being told, you know, they're told like reduce costs, like, oh, here we could reduce costs this way. And, you know, I, I had one VP I worked with that every time he was asked to do something, the first response would be like, well, how's this going to affect my team? It was very self-centered and like, but that's just who he was. And so rather than expect him to be different, I'm like, I would just lead with that. Hey, so this we're going to ask you to do this. Here's how it's going to affect your team. And he would trust me more because I was like clearly on his side. I'm looking out for him. I'm thinking about what's going to affect him and what he cares about. Yeah, so good. Um, I want to pick up one thing you said before about like how do you keep the principal informed? So part of it was me developing these relationships. People would feed me information and I would share with my principal. But he was also, my VP was also really good at just staying curious and like, not going into blaming mode, not not uh, overreacting to bad news. He would just always be working on building relationships himself. So he spent spent a lot of his time on one on ones, just collecting information, talking to people, building those relationships, so that when he does need something, yep, they're there and ready to be activated. And but like you know, for me personally, like there were times I I, I made a few mistakes. One no. of my most memorable was in annual planning one year. I, I thought the number was already included in our number and it wasn't. And so on February, I was like, where's the $30 million to fund this? And Ooh. finance is like, you didn't ask for it. I'm like, I thought it was in there. They're like, oh, we didn't put it in. And I had to go to my boss. I'm like, so we're kind of missing $30 million in our budget. <laughs> and I don't know what scales of number you work with, but $30 million sounds like a lot to me. So that's what I'm saying. It was a big deal. It wasn't death, it wasn't like our whole budget, but it was it was a big chunk. And oh, wow. So and he was like, but rather than say, like, Eric, how could you be such an idiot? What are you doing? What do yeah. I pay you for? He was just like, okay, that sucks. How are we gonna get out of this? Oh Can man. Some pl- good boss. And I'm like, good boss. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why I loved working for him. And because he had that reaction, that means people were willing to give feed him stuff before rather than try to look head cut off. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. And that's part of what made him so effective is he people just trusted him that he would try to do the right thing, even when it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, it's easy to do the right thing when it doesn't cost you anything. It's Mm -hmm. it's difficult to, you know maintain integrity and and keep to your values when it's you're sacrificing something so it sounds like you have a you had a great a great boss and a great leader in in that respect and i wanted to go back on something you hit on which is how you present information is so so critical so going to you know i had a client and they were talking about well we need to have this happen in the org we need this restructure we need this tool da 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 and instead of going to the principal and kind of laying out this laundry list of things that were needed, it was it was conveying the same information, but just like you said, hey, I have an idea about how to increase revenue this next quarter. Can I share that with you? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, here's some alignment I see for the functional roles we have. We used to have it like this, but now we need pods to better serve our customers. And that's going to create our efficiencies and be able to upsell, cross-sell, all these things. And again, it was, the ask was the same at the end of the day, but the framing around that was so different. And so it landed differently. So I love that point that you made. Yeah, that reminds me of something else that I think is really important for chief of staff to remember. Repetition. Repetition, yeah. repetition, repetition. So both, yes, you have to understand what they care about. But then saying it once is not enough. Nope. 
So when I came in, I was actually like your client. I was like, well, this is what needs to happen. We're going to do this. We need to do this. We need to do this. We need to do this. And I came in, I said it all and nobody listened. <laughs> and I said it all again and nobody listened. I'm like, I guess I just don't want to change. And I kind of get to throw up my hands and said, well, fine. And a year into the role, I was like, no, this, this actually really does matter, but nobody's listening to me. So what am I missing? What, what do they care about? And I was like, you know what? They aren't seeing the same information I am. Because I'd been looking at some industry trends. I'm like, this is what we need. This is where the, th the things are going. So every meeting for six months, I just led every presentation I did with like, <laughs> here's the industry trends. Here's where things are going. Look, this is that leveling off. Shouldn't we do something about that? That's awesome. And, you know, six months into that campaign, one of the engineering directors was like, Eric, do you have to start every meeting by depressing us? I'm like, Yes, but now I think I'm done. I think you get it now. Apparently, the answer <laughs> to that is yes, I do. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no, connecting to what they care about. And repetition, some people, so I would send emails and I would spend a lot of time like crafting this really nice, succinct, bullet pointed <laughs> with bolds and highlights, easy to read emails. And then I get to the meeting and assume everyone had read my email word for word, which is never a safe assumption. And some people would look at me like, you sent an email? Facepalm. Oh my gosh. So it was an email, a Slack, a follow-up email on Slack, a mention at it, to it at the leadership meeting, repeating my mention of it, following up individually, just whatever needed to happen to get the message across to that particular individual. It was kind of a, a full court press on some of those scenarios. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember where I read it. I think it was in the book, Making of a Manager, but they said something like, you have to be prepared to repeat your message 10 different times in 10 different ways for it to get through. And I'm just like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, I've heard Julie seven, Joe. but 10 just to make sure. And, and different methods, I like that because some people like to see it written and some people have to hear it and some people have to discuss it with you. So yeah. Some so people it's have just, to see it, yeah. yeah. It's just every which way yeah, you can people, do it. Well, people learn. If you were to make the case for the role of chief of staff, because obviously you made a huge impact with that role and it seemed like you um, enjoyed it. It was very challenging and um, got to the end. It was a lot. But, you know, what if you're talking to a potential principal or executive, what would you say is valuable about that role? I guess it's it just provides leverage. It's like if you want to scale yourself as a leader, having somebody that can take read your mind, basically, and get things done. It's huge. You're like, hey, I need you to go do X. And they go off and do it. And they come back and they provide you options. And they give you insights and they provide you direction on which ways to go. Like, that's huge. And, you know, calling back to what we talked about earlier, having that independent point of view, somebody that doesn't have a stake is only invested in the success of the business. That's really important. So <clears throat> it's a way to fill in your gaps. Like, I think that's the most valuable thing of a chief of staff is like, they, they just fill in the gaps of what needs to happen. And otherwise you're like chasing around trying yourself as a leader, trying to make everything happen. And that's, you got other things to do. You got to lead the, lead the freaking organization. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a reason that like it, the chief of staff started off in politics. It's like the president has to like run the nation. So yes. they have a chief of staff to go make sure stuff actually happens once they make a decision. And, and I think, think too, sorry, yeah. it shouldn't be underestimated how valuable having someone see across the organization is. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you have these different departments and functional areas and the heads of those departments, as we talked about, should rightly be involved and advocate on behalf of those. But having someone 
who is objective and is for everyone in a sense, is for the success of the team or the business, is just just a really valuable vantage point and it keeps it keeps everyone honest. And so that's a that's a great aspect. And then it sounds like, you know, if, if you want to read the principal's mind, which is a great advantage, like someone just send Eric in there because he knows what the boss will think. I'm assuming that required communication or regular communication with your principal. And so maybe mm-hmm. it is to to be principals, like, hey, you're going to have to be able to invest in this role and give them the time and the access to be able to be effective in their role. Which, what do you think about that? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a symbiosis. It's a partnership. And it does take time to develop it. I mean, I was fortunate I got to work with the same guy for six over, over six years. So by the end, it, we were pretty... Mind melded. <laughs> we we had, we had a lot of a lot in common, but but it took time, and like part of it was also <clears throat> I, I was about a year into the role, and and actually pretty frustrated at the time because one of the problems being the fill in the gap guy as the chief of staff is that you can get a lot of crap dumped on you, mm-hmm. <laughs> everything that nobody else wants to do. They're like, oh, you're the chief of staff, you should do this, and I didn't have a perspective on like what was mine to do and what shouldn't be mine to do. So I just took everything, and then. I was weighed down by a lot of, well, just jobs nobody else wanted. And that was pretty frustrating. And I was like, I don't really like this. This has been very much fun. I don't feel like I'm adding much value. I actually got to the point where I was interviewing outside of Google because I'm like, I'm done with this. I can't do this anymore. But I was like, before I leave, maybe, crazy idea, I could go talk to my principal. (laughs) (laughs) Communication, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And then eventually, I mean, you obviously state that's... (laughs) <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did, I had that conversation. I was like, hey, I feel like since I'm doing a lot, this is what I'm spending my time on. It doesn't feel that valuable. There's this other strategic work that I think would be really valuable and I want to do it, yeah. but I'm not, I don't have time for it. It's like, well, that's dumb because I want you to do the strategic stuff. So let's figure out how to change this situation. And again, the fact that he received it instead of saying like, you idiot, why didn't you figure it out? He was like, oh, let's work together. Yeah increased our trust together so that we could then have more and more of those direct conversations over the years. Absolutely. I love that. And if you were talking to a new chief of staff who's still trying to figure out, you know, I want to build bridges, I want to get inroads with people, so I'll take the hard stuff, but making that distinction between I'm strategically taking this task on or taking this task off someone else's plate Mm -hmm. while also not, you know, bogging myself down with minutia. How do you kind of make that line in the sand? Yeah, what I tell when I coach chiefs of staff, I'll I'll often say like, do you want to be doing this task in a year? Mm. And if the answer is no, make that clear up front and find somebody else. It's fine to do it once or twice to get the hang of it and understand it, but keep it in mind because if you don't put that caveat in up front, you're just going to get loaded down. And that seems to be a pretty good criteria for people. Do you want to do this in a year? Like, no. Like, great. <laughs> Make a plan. <laughs> totally, totally. I would I would do a lot of, you mentioned gap filling. So I did a lot of that in the sense of, Emily, stand this thing up and then hand it mm-hmm. off. So like stand yeah. this part of the business up. It's the first time we built it. And then also concurrently be recruiting and hiring. And so when we do find the right person, you can hand it off to someone. Sometimes that was three months. Sometimes that was 18 months, but eventually Mm -hmm. it was going to be handed off. So that was, 
That was a great one. There's so much more I could I could talk to you about, but just to get to it, what are you up to now? And what I see a I see a pre-copy of your book. So so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I've been working as a, so I left Google about four years ago. I've, I've been working as an executive coach, helping leaders grow their impact. And over the past four years, I've been working with executives from startups and from big tech companies. I found myself repeating the same advice, the same mindsets, the same stories. And eventually I was like, you know, I think I actually have an idea of how to do this in a way that's like, not just conversational, but a way to a, a process of source. So that's what this book is about. It's called, You Have a Choice Beyond Hard Work to Meaningful Impact. And it kind of shares a little bit of my own journey and as well as the journeys, the journey of my clients and working through some of these mindsets. How do you influence people? How do you figure out how you're keeping yourself stuck? That's a big, big part of the the book. It's recognizing that most of the time, well, some of the time, we are the person keeping ourselves stuck. We are doing things a certain way. We're reacting a certain way. We have a limiting belief. And when we can notice that and bring it into attention and then realize we have a choice, we can make a different choice. And with a different choice, you get different results. And that's how you get unstuck. Wow. Yeah. And is that for, is this through the lens of chief of staff or is it just more broad, you know, business leadership or kind of mindset? What is that geared toward? It's more mindset. I mean, it's, it's, it is, I use it with my leadership clients and my executive clients and chief of staff clients, honestly, but this is more the, I would say the foundation that allows for development and change. Because until you recognize how you are contributing to your situation, nothing can change. And that's kind of the, the, what I often say is the only thing you actually control is your next action mm, because yeah. the past has already happened. It's yeah. not going to change. Even if you complain and whine and say it should be different, it's not going to change. The yeah. future is complex. There's so many things that can affect it. We can't predict the future, even if we have the best of plans. And other people, they got their own things going on. <laughs> so we can't control other people. So it's like, I can't control the past, can't control the future, can't control other people. What's left is, right now and myself. And so that's what I focus on as a coach. What are you, what are you going to change in your own behavior to change the situation? Mm. And so I, I kind of joke that the this book is for people for whom working harder isn't working. Uh-huh. Like doing more of what you're doing yeah. is not getting you unstuck. In fact, it's digging you deeper. That's the time to step back and go like, wait, something is not aligned here. Something is off here. I have to figure that out. And that's kind of what the book leads you through. Like, what am I doing that's like getting me deeper into my hole instead of getting me out of it? Yes. And say the name again and where people can find it. <clears throat> it's called You Have a Choice Beyond Hard Work to Meaningful Impact. It's available on Amazon. Probably by the time you release this, you can buy it. And uh, you can read about it, a little bit more about it at toomanytrees.com slash book. Very cool. Very cool. And I have one final question. This is just like total, total my 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 curiosity. In Ender's Game, have you read Ender's Shadow? That's from Bean, Bean's perspective. Mm-hmm. Do you think Bean was like a chief of staff or do you think he was kind of like Starfleet or not Starfleet, but the fleet was setting him up as a backup? I think they're setting him up as a backup. I really hated that whole trilogy. Uh, <laughs> I did not like it, I'll be honest, because it, it, it leaned too far to the magical genius aspect of it, mm. which I thought was... What I liked about the original Ender's Game is it really got into the mindset of somebody like, how do I 
deal with this situation? What do I, could I do? What are the levers I can pull? What do I have available to me? And being what, and in the Ender Shadow, Bean came off as just like, I'm just a magical genius at two years old. I translate in three languages. And it's just like, okay, and just, just be really smart is not actually helpful. It's not helpful advice. Whereas like Ender's Game was really smart, but it was also like, what can I do with the tools I have and the, the levers I have to affect my situation? So that's what I liked about that book. Yeah, I liked, I take your point. And I think what I liked about it is I love the part where you see the same scenes in battle school, but from Bean's perspective. Mm -hmm. So like the same yeah. events are being recounted, but it's from someone else's perspective. And it just kind of helps. Oh yeah, this situation has so many different perspectives and vantage points. And, you know, th the way it's told in, in Ender's Shadow is Bean sometimes has more or different information than Ender. And so he's watching mm -hmm. him. He's watching Ender to make sure, okay, if he m makes this move or if he goes too far, I need to be there to catch or to or to redirect that. And so I thought, I was like, oh mm. my gosh, it's the exact same scenes, but it's it's from a different vantage point. So I like that aspect. That part's cool. I think it's really important to recognize these different perspectives. I think that's, yeah. it's it's such a, I mean, that, I, I, to put in a plug for coaching, that's uh, one of the big <laughs> values of a coach or a chief of staff actually is you provide a different perspective. So the VP only has one perspective or your client only has one perspective and you come in from the outside, you're like, well, here's a different way of looking at that. Mm -hmm. They're like, ooh, no, I haven't. And it opens up their world a little bit, which then can lead to different decisions and different actions. And I remember that Ender said, Bean, I need you to come up with like 12 stupid ideas. So like go, you know, go. And Bean was like, I was sitting in my bed and he would have been glad because I already had five. But he just <laughs> like outside of the box. It's just like, go, go think of silly things and, and come back to me. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think that, I think that book talks about, you know, I have to use my general, so to speak, or I have to use my my officers. So there's like Petra and I'm forgetting the rest, like Mink, Deke, uh, Dink, what, what was that, yeah. what, that character? But Dink and Ally and yeah. Yes, like all of those people who just brought a diverse kind of viewpoint on things, but you had to work together. And like you said before, they have to be independent. They have to be self-sufficient and know what the mission is. So yeah, oh, so many good things about that book. But I did love the kind of the, the bean angle where there's a little tiny, tiny bit of, of chief of staff or of, of a mm. coach in there. So anyway, nice. thanks for, thanks for indulging me on that. Eric, I will have all of your information in the show notes and people can reach out to you there and make sure that they pick up the book. We'll have all of that information as well, but thank you so much for spending time with us. And I really, really appreciated the insights that you brought and just sharing your background and experience with people. Well, thank you, Emily. I really enjoyed our conversation and I did not expect to be talking about Ender's Game today. So <laughs> that was a bonus. That's definitely a bonus. surprise. <laughs> uh, that's a feature of the conversation, not, not a flaw. <laughs> right. Sounds right. good. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 